We're in Luke chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 20 through 35, the end of, nope, not Luke, Mark. Mark chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 20. If you're using an ESV, it's a little before the section heading. Um, I didn't notice what the NIV section heading is, but I think we're going to see this logically sticks together as a unit, verses 20 through 35. I'll read it all, and then we'll pray and reflect on it together. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word which, as Jesus says in the next parable, is like a seed that is sown in us. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would be at work within us, tilling the soil of our souls and our hearts so that the seed would take root and would grow and flourish therein, that we might grow in our love for Christ and for our desire to build your kingdom. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. This evening in this passage, we see two wrong hypotheses, two wrong theories about Jesus. We see this in the structure that is sometimes called a Markin sandwich. Uh, It's something you go to the deli and get, right? Uh, The idea of a Markin sandwich is that Mark structures some of these stories a bit like an Oreo. So an Oreo, you got the cookie, the cookie, and what's in the middle? Cream filling, that's right. Okay, so it's a bit like an Oreo, and Mark does this a number of times. He has one story that's like the cookie inside and outside. And in the middle, he deposits, or, or, or deposits the wrong word, but he puts another story 
in the middle. So do you see in 20 and 21, his family hears about what's going on. They set out to seize him. And then at the end, his family arrives. And yet in the middle of that, verses 22 through 30, is another story about Jesus's interaction with the scribes. We'll see a similar pattern. If you have an open paper Bible, it's easy to page through. We see a similar pattern in chapter 5. Uh, Jesus sets out to heal Jairus' daughter. Then he has the, the encounter with the woman of the issue of bleeding, and then he arrives at Jairus' house. In chapter 6, he sends out the apostles, and there's a story about the death of John the Baptist, and then the apostles come back. Um, in chapter 11, I think it was preached on while I was gone a little while ago, but uh, Jesus curses the fig tree, he goes to the temple, and then he comes back and the fig tree is withered. And the other example I thought of is in chapter 8, he heals a blind man, then he sets out on the road to Jerusalem, he arrives and heals another blind man. I wonder, can you guys think of other examples, either in Mark or in other literature or movies of this sort of sandwich structure? No wrong answers. Just curious if you guys thought of anything. Oh, yeah, with Judah and Tamar in the middle of that. Yeah, yeah, embedded in that. Yeah, good, good, Ben. I was trying to think if any of the Star Wars movies do this, but I couldn't, I couldn't think of any good illustrations there. But, okay, so is that kind of clear what's happening here with the sandwich Uh, why does Mark do this? Well, the effect is to bring together two stories and to get us as a reader to be thinking about the stories together rather than individually. And that's why as we move through this series of Mark, we're kind of uh, dealing with more than one section heading. And that's because Mark really wants us to be thinking about these things together. Um, And so Mark here is, is, is he's making a larger point, bringing these together about the wrong hypotheses, the wrong theories about Jesus. Now, before we get into this, I just want to make a brief comment about the place that we're at in Mark's gospel. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, 6, uh, roughly what's been covered the last three or four weeks, we've had a series of questions. So four stories where Jesus is asked a question, and then Nate taught last week on Jesus asking a question. Okay, so they ask him, why does he speak like, or why does he say he can forgive sins? Why does he speak like this? Uh, Why does he eat with sinners? Why do his disciples uh, not fast? Why do his disciples eat the grain? And then Jesus asks, is it right? What's it right to do on the Sabbath? To do good or bad? uh, To to, to give life or to kill? So, well, these two questions, especially 2.17, why does this man that is Jesus? Why does he that is Jesus eat with pastors and sinners? Okay, there's a big question. Living and behaving. Well, now in chapter three, the end of chapter three that we're looking at, Jesus's family and the scribes both put forward theories that would explain why he behaves in these ways. Why is he speaking like this? Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Well, uh, their answers are wrong, but that seems to be the question they're addressing. And just tentatively, that we assume a similar thing as we move forward to the mark. So after Jesus calms the storm at the end of chapter 4, remember the disciples came up, he calms the storm, and the disciples are much afraid, and they say, who then is this? Okay, so they're not asking why does he say this or do this, but who is this? It's a deeper question about his identity. And then as we move forward in the gospel from there, remember at the beginning of the story about Herod putting John to death, there's going around people asking, uh, uh, who is this? Herod, Herod, I'll describe it. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus is known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why 
these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah and others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, who I'm, whom I beheaded has been raised. So who is this? And then Herod and him are this. And further forward in chapter 8, the same discussion is going on. Uh, the disciples say that I am. They okay, so Mark uh, has this pattern. He's, questions are getting raised about why does Jesus behave in this way? Wrong answers are given. And we're meant as readers to be trying to develop a right answer. The next question, a deeper question, not just why does he act this way, but who is this who can do these things? Wrong answers are given. And then Peter starts to get towards a right answer. So, sorry, there's kind of the big overview of Mark, some of these dynamics here. Partially because I was driving a lot yesterday. If you have a smartphone and the ESV app, Kristen Getty reads the entire ESV, and it's quite nice to listen to. So I listened to the Gospel of Mark while I was driving yesterday. Um, she does pronounce poor a little bit funny in her Irish accent. It takes you a bit to figure out what she's saying. But other than that, uh, quite a good reading in my opinion. So I was noticing some of these questions and answers coming up through the Gospel of Mark. Okay, in, 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 in the section we're looking at tonight, verses 20 through 35, there are three groups of people. I wonder if you notice who these three groups are. The crowd. That, yep. That's right, yeah. So Jesus' family, uh, a crowd, and the teachers of the law. And maybe there's even a distinction within the crowd because Jesus sort of is calling out some members of that crowd, perhaps. Okay, so we have three big groups of people here. Jesus' family. This goes home. It's not exactly clear what it means. One, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and he seems to be happy because he's at home. He's only part of the friends. So perhaps he's again. Ministry of Jesus. And the rest of the people, the 12 apostles, they just did referring to the verses. Innocent of the end of chapter 1 in verse 45, the large that Jesus couldn't enter inhabited places. It raises a question. What kind of Jesus pursuing? Large crowds a benefit for that ministry or, in fact, a hindrance? Or are they both phases of the ministry, at times large crowds and at other times small groups? I don't have an answer to that, but it does raise a question at least to ponder. Um, we tend to think a large crowd, this is a successful ministry. And Jesus, it seems to be inhibiting the sort of uh, more intimate discipleship that he's trying to do. Yeah, Nate. Yeah. 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 And in chapter one, Jairus' house, I think it literally says the crowd are pushing them. Um, uh, and then later, chapter somewhere, the crowds want a sign, and he's saying, "Why are you asking for a sign?" So there's there's kind of a for a while, it's fine to be in this sort of secret group. Eventually, you make a decision. You can't just stay in that in between. Yeah, great. Thank you, Nate. Okay, so then 321, his family sets out. The Greek is a little bit ambiguous here. It's, it's his people. It could mean his extended relatives. It could mean perhaps friends, people that were aware of him. Um, but it seems to me most likely, or, or, or it's best to read it as referring in general terms Okay, his family set out to get him. And then when we come to verse 31, we realize, oh, it's not just like some cousin. It's his mother and brothers. It's his close family that's setting out to get him. 
Okay, and, and in verse 21, then, we come to the first hypotheses. Why does Jesus speak in this way? Why does he behave in this way? Because he has lost his mind. He's out of his mind, is what they say. And what's their solution then? They're going to seize him. And it sounds a bit like uh, we hear at times, and have to go get this person out of the cold and take them to deprogram them and get them unbrainwashed. And it seems like that's how Jesus' family has more or less interpreted this. He's saying we need to back home, train him, somehow get it normal again. Is there put on pause? Because another group shows up in verse 22. The scribes from Jerusalem. The scribes or NIV teachers of the law from Jerusalem. The Pharisees uh, are potentially open to Jesus' teaching. They want to debate it with them. But the scribes generally seem to be in opposition. And they generally seem to be coordinated with the temple leadership in Jerusalem. So scribes from Jerusalem, it's saying here's some official opposition coming down. Uh, Earlier we had that series of four questions, the back and forth. And then Jesus asks the question, okay, they're kind of feeling him out. They're trying to get a sense of, okay, what's he teaching? Is he orthodox or not? Well, here it seems, okay, we've come to a conclusion. Here's what we think's going on. What's their hypothesis? It's not that he's lost his mind, but in fact, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebub is probably a g- Greek version of Baal, Zebul. So the Baal of, of, of this town, Zebul. Um, but at the time of Jesus, it would refer to one of the chief demons, is, seems to be the thought here. Since they say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Okay, uh, If it's bad that his family thinks he's lost his mind, to think that he's possessed by the prince of demons is far worse, less charitable hypothesis. I have a question for you. Have you ever thought or do you think that your faith in Jesus would be strengthened if you were eyewitness to a miracle? Nate thinks so. Okay. Thanks, Nate, for being bold. We like to think that. You know, if I saw an evil spirit cast out, then I would really have firm faith. And yet notice here the scribes, they don't deny that evil spirits are being cast out. They don't deny that miracles are being done. And yet they interpret it as being done by the power of Satan. So it's not that if you have eyewitness, you know, if, I, if I'm an eyewitness to a miracle, then I will have faith. But rather, unless you have faith, even witnessing a miracle, you'll totally misread it as the opposite of what's actually happening. So we need to be careful what we're looking for, what we expect. Sometimes, you know, we have this unrealistic standard in mind. They don't deny Jesus' miracles, but they claim they are happening by the power of the prince of demons. How would you respond to being accused of being possessed by the prince of demons? <laughs> I think I probably would not keep my cool at that point. That would be uh, you know, just kind of writing people off. Uh, you know, yeah, rude, rude signs and time to leave, you know, that kind of thing. Like I'm done with this conversation. But do you see how Jesus responds? Not just responding, but he responds to the parables. And Jesus are thoughtful in the most line or accusations. This is a fairly familiar block of teaching here. And yet, at least for me, I don't always think of these as being parables. And noticing that kind of, you know, it is interesting. These are parables that he's responding with. First, the basic question in verse 23, he slightly reframes. They're saying he's doing this by the power of the prince of demons. Well, he rephrases it, saying, you're saying I'm casting out demons by the power of demons. 
how can Satan cast out Satan? Okay, this is the question. And even if he rephrases it that way already, you start to think, wait, something a little goofy about the logic there. And then yes, here's the quick parables. Verse 24 is a civil war. Okay, Ukraine is trying to resist Russia. If Ukraine is also fighting a civil war at the same time, would it be possible for them to resist Russia? Uh, a, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. It can't resist other countries. It certainly can't invade other countries. Likewise, a house that's marked by family conflict will not be able to stand. A house should do against itself. And note well, you realize it is actually Jesus, not Abraham Lincoln, despite motivational posters and every, you know, Abraham Lincoln's quoting Jesus here. So these two mini parables, a civil war and family conflict, then in verse 26, Jesus answers the question on basis. If a kingdom that's in the midst of civil war can't stand, if a house that's marked by divorce and conflict can't stand, then likewise, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Verse 27, then we have a third parable, and it is helpful to miss the parable, a bit elusive, a little bit strange. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Okay, you don't go to the toughest guy in town's house and take his goods unless you tie him up first. But the logic here then, Jesus is saying he is actually the stronger one who comes and binds the strong man, that is Satan, and have failed. In Isaiah 49, we get one of these servant songs. There's four of them in the book of Isaiah. The most famous is Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. But a bit earlier in Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25, uh, can, they be, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Uh, and it gets worse. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior, Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Seems like Jesus is maybe alluding back to this earlier prophecy. He's saying, will the captives be set free? Can the strong man's house be plundered? Yes, because I have bound him. And so now I am bringing the captives free. Any questions about that block there, 23 through 27, or comments or observations? All right, good. <laughs> Perfectly clear, great. Okay, then in verses 28 through 30, there's another little block of teaching here. Jesus is warning about blasphemy. Now, we tend to narrow in on this unforgivable sin and worry about what that might be. But notice, first of all, it is a proclamation of good news. Truly, I say to you, amen, I say to you, let me be true. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. In the first instance, it's an assertion of forgiveness or at least the possibility of forgiveness. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Okay, sensitive consciences throughout church history have worried that perhaps they have committed this sin and so are in some sense damned. But that is to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Perhaps an analogy will help. 
We have vaccines and medicines for all kinds of diseases. But if you reject medicine altogether, there's no medicine that we can give you except medicine. In the nature of the case, once you've rejected medicine, there's no way to use medicine. That's what Jesus is saying here. The Holy Spirit is the sort of medicine we need for our souls. And through the Holy Spirit and Christ's work, there's forgiveness for all sins and all blasphemy. It can all be forgiven, even these bad things that they're saying about Jesus. But if you reject the medicine itself, the Holy Spirit that changes our hearts so that we can accept Jesus, then there is no way to accept Jesus and be forgiven. It's rejecting the very medicine itself. And so Jesus is warning the scribes here. Denying Jesus, saying he has an unclean spirit, is denying their very hope for salvation. Okay, he's not saying you've offended me so badly that I can't forgive you. But rather he's saying, uh, in John's language, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't through me, there's no way to inherit eternal life. I am what you need. So that's what he's talking about there when he's talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What we need is the Holy Spirit to regenerate us so that we can have faith in Jesus, so that his miracles do confirm our faith rather than generate all sorts of crazy other hypotheses. But if it has to start with the Holy Spirit. There's no way to get around that. Any questions or comments on that, that part there? Yeah, Jesse. Um, yeah, yep. Yeah. In a sense, yes, they would, because he's saying, he's saying, you're saying I'm holy God that is doing this. So, um, you don't realize it, but you're actually maligning God's Holy spirit by saying it's an unclean spirit. Yep. Yeah. 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 And they, they just simply won't answer. They're silent. And then likewise, at the, towards the end of the gospel in chapter 12, I think, um, they want to know by whose authority he's doing things. And he says, I'll tell you, but first tell me by whose authority did John come? And they discuss amongst themselves, if we say he was from heaven, then they'll say, why didn't you follow John? But if we say his power was an unclean spirit, like we're saying here, then the crowds are going to stone us because they all like John. And so they don't answer there either. So, uh, yes, several times it comes as pointed, you've got to make a decision. Here's the question. It's this or this. And they just refuse. Um, uh, Yeah. 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 It's a scary situation uh, to, to be in there. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that in just a second. So remind me if I forget to come back to it, but yeah. Okay. Well then we pick up, we're back to the, 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 the black part of the Oreo, whatever you call that, the cookie part of the Oreo coming back to the story that Mark began with a few verses ago. Okay, his family set out thinking he had lost his mind. Now in verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, that's interesting. Are they standing outside because the crowd is so dense they can't get in? Although at the same time, they sent to him, so apparently someone could get through the crowd, 
and called him. So there's kind of, again, maybe a similar dynamic here that they're on the outside. They're not ready to come in and sit around Jesus and hear his teaching. They're on the outside calling him to come out to them. A crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So maybe words getting passed along and it gets to them, or maybe it's that they're refusing to join this crowd that's following Jesus. And I think Mark is ambiguous here that we have to imaginatively fill in the details. They said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Okay. In the Western world, we have trouble getting our head around how forceful this is. Uh, Not picking on Craig, but just thinking of Craig, you have a son in Montana, a son in the South, uh, or, or, you know, different states in the South. For us to have spread out family is not a big deal. In ancient Palestine, oftentimes families lived in a sort of largish or not that large house together. Okay, the family unit was a defining feature of life. Uh, Even for adult children, the father was still the guiding light in the family, and and you wouldn't make big decisions without consulting your father or your older uh, parents. Okay, honor your father and mother is an important commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. And so when Jesus, in the midst of this very family-driven, in some ways similar to, uh, I mean, I have not traveled in Asia, but it's at least the stereotype of Asian culture being very uh, honoring of parents, family-driven. It's in that sort of a culture. And Jesus says, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Who is my mother and brother? I don't know who you're talking about. It could be abrasive even in that context. And looking about at those who sat around him. So he's looking around. He pauses for a moment. He's looking at each of them. And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so there's the crowd kind of on the fence. We talked to these three, the family. And he's redefining my family is the ones who are sitting around me, listening to my teaching, and who do the God. And so it's a call to reorient our basic commitments around Jesus himself. This whole story then reminds me of C.S. Lewis's famous line about, uh, you know, people, modern people especially want to say Jesus was a good guy, uh, maybe even a wise teacher, but he's not the son of God. Uh, and, and Lewis said he could be insane, he could be evil, or he could be the son of God. But someone can't go around claiming to be the son of God and be lying and yet be a good guy. And that kind of is what's going on here in the story. It's forcing the issue on us, the reader. As it were, we're part of the crowd. We have some hypotheses here. Do we think he's out of his mind? Keep that as a live option as you read through the gospel. And I don't think that Mark's not saying he is. But okay, does this look like someone who's out of his mind? No. Is he doing this by the demonic powers? Again, as we're reading through, he's exalted himself. And Jesus exhibits humility. He's putting the needs of others above himself to the point of sacrificing himself. Okay, that hypothesis doesn't fly. So what alternative is there? Well, what does Mark tell us at the beginning? He shows his hand at the very beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. Okay, so he said, here's some rival things. What do you think? Do you think he's Christ, the son of God? And if so, we have to reorient all of our basic commitments around Jesus. Are we sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching? Are we doing the will of God? We can't just be in this crowd sitting on the fence, uh, as, as, as Nate pointed out. Any other last thoughts on this passage? Well, that is a real challenge to each of you, to to myself as well, to each of us, is what are we, 
if we say Jesus is the son of God, are we orienting our lives around him or not? Yeah, Nate. Yes. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I should have, I should have had that in my notes that, um, so that, that, okay. The, the worst Christmas song in my opinion, sorry if, if this is raising hackles, but Mary, did you know, okay, that your baby boy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. In Luke, he tells us that Mary hears these things. She ponders them in her heart. At this point in Mark, she doesn't seem to understand his mission. She says, okay, he's the Christ, but this isn't what the Christ, I expect the Christ to look like. And I, assuming that when Mark says Mary, the mother of James, he's talking about Jesus' mother. She's there at the resurrection. James, Jude, church. So at some point coming through this, the death and resurrection, they come to faith. So yeah, they reject this wrong view that he's out of his mind. And they, they themselves, as you're saying, they're once again his mother and brothers by the end of the gospel because they've reoriented themselves around him. Yeah, that's an important point. Thanks, Nate. I don't know what it says about the Christmas song, but...